Today we will discuss the rules for the division of profits and losses generated by a partnership between the partners, along with several other related questions. Pigmarin Suvis brings a statement of Shmuel setting forth a perhaps somewhat unintuitive rule. Shmuel says that partners split the profits of their partnership equally, even if their capital contributions, the amount of money they contributed to the partnership, were not equal. One gave more than the other, they still split the schar lamza. The Gemara has a debate about the scope of Shmuel's halacha. It's a complicated sugya with various explanations of the Rishonim, but the halacha follows Shmuel's basic rule that the schar, the profit, is shared equally even if their capital contributions were unequal. What is the rationale for this? So the Rishonim bring various svaris, broadly speaking, two families of svaris. First, we have Shalmi, Rashi. Rashi says, the Gemara is discussing a cow. Rashi says a cow is not divisible. Half a cow can function as a cow. The, the entire cow is, is what enables the cow to work as a cow. So if the two partners contributed toward the cow, even if one contributed more and one contributed less, since the cow can't function with either contribution by itself, the whole is something new, and they split the profits evenly. Yushalmi goes even further. Yushalmi says even if we're discussing merchandise, they bought wheat, Merchandise, for, for example, wheat, merchandise is divisible. If they have 100 bushels of, of produce or 100 units of some merchandise, 100 pairs of shoes, the, the shoes, each pair of shoes is a separate entity. Each bushel of wheat doesn't need the other wheat to function. Nevertheless, the Yushalmi says the partners still split equally. And the reason is because when you do business, the terms of the deal you get, the prices or other terms, the terms of the deal depend on the, the size of the deal, the amount you're buying. If you have a certain amount of capital that enables you to do a certain deal, and less capital, sometimes maybe you can do the same deal with less capital, but sometimes at least the, the deal requires the entire, the entire amount of capital available, and therefore, once again, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Each, each partner's contribution by itself would be qualitatively different from the pooled capital that we have, that we have with both their contributions, and therefore, again, each partner requires the other partner we can't just look at, we can't just reduce the partnership to the sum of its parts, and therefore the profits are divided equally. So that's one school of thought, that the reason the profits are split equally is because it's based on the objective nature of the partnership, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. An alternate approach is set forth by Tostus and the Rush. They say that the issue is subjective. The Rush brings Yushalmi, but he proposes an alternate svar. Tostus already said this. Tostus says, that the assumption is, the default assumption is, that the partners wish to split the profits equally. The Rush elaborates, the Rush says, generally partners do split the profits in proportion to their capital contributions, and generally that would be stipulated. If you don't stipulate that, you should have, and the absence of such a stipulation is conspicuous, we assume, we presume that your intention is that the profits should be split equally. This kind of argument is really a double-edged sword. You could, equal, you could also argue that since the profits are usually split proportionally, if they didn't stipulate it, we assume they want the usual arrangement. But the Rush says, no, if they don't stipulate, we assume they want something different from the usual argument. They want a 50-50 split. In any event, that's the halacha, that the profits are split equally, even if their contributions of capital were unequal. As we mentioned, there are a number of different approaches to the Surya and the Rishonim. Uh, the Smas says there are as many as five. The two or three of the major approaches, however, are there is the approach of the Rambam and the Rif, as understood by the Shulchan Aruch, that the Rambam and the Rif maintain that the, the Gemara is discussing a cow. They explain that as long as the cow is alive, and when it's alive, as we said, it's indivisible, 
So at that point, the profits are split equally. When they buy the cow and then they sell the cow and they generate a profit, since the cow is an indivisible entity, half a cow is not a functioning live cow, that's why the profits are split equally. But had they shechted the cow and reduced the cow to meat, meat is divisible, and then the profits are split in proportion to their, in proportion to their contributions of capital. Similarly, the Beis Yosef says, according to this, if we're dealing with merchandise, which is inherently divisible, it's not alive, and each unit of merchandise is separable from the other merchandise, then again, according to the sheets of the Rif and the Rambam, they would split the profits in proportion to their capital contributions. This is the Rif and the Rambam, as understood by the Beis Yosef. Not everyone agrees to this, but this is how the Beis Yosef understands the Rif and the Rambam, and this is how the Shulchan Aruch Paskins. Another major approach is the approach of the Rush, the Rush says, again, based on how he understands the Svar of Shmuel, the Rush says it doesn't matter. Again, as the Beis Yosef explains the Rush, it doesn't matter if the cow is alive or dead. It doesn't matter if we're discussing cows which are not divisible or merchandise which is divisible. It doesn't matter. The Schar is always Lamsa, regardless of what we're talking about. The Rush goes much further than the Rif. The Rush says Shmuel's din goes much further, that the profits are always divisible, are always divided 50-50 among the partners even if the merchandise is divisible, even if their contributions are unequal, that we always divide the star 50-50. A third view is the opinion of the Rif and the Sha'arim. We've been discussing previously the Rif and the Halachas. The Rif and the Sha'arim has a third view. He says that it depends on whether the partnership operated according to the initial plan, or, wh- or whether things changed and the partnership veered in, off in a different direction. As long as the partnership operated in the, according to the original plan, that's where Shmuelsdin applies, and they split the profits 50-50. But once they did something new, even if that was by mutual agreement, that, that's no longer considered the continued operation of the partnership. That's something new. It's like they weren't partners at all, and then they split the profits in proportion to their, to their contributions. The Ramah brings and seems to pass me like this view of the Sha'arim, that, that, that if the partnership changed direction from its initial uh, charter, then the profits are no longer split 50-50. Now, the Gemara and some of the Rishonim are speaking specifically about profits. The Gemara doesn't say anything about losses. What happens if, unfortunately, instead of generating profits, the partnership uh, instead incurs losses? So here we have, here again, it's, much, it's not clear in the Gemara, here we have a major Machlux Rishonim. Rambam says that losses are also split 50-50. Just as profits are split 50-50, losses are split 50-50. Again, even if the contributions are unequal, nevertheless, the losses are borne equally, so even the person who contributed less capital is still on the hook for 50% of the loss, which means he takes a proportionally much higher share, he'll, he'll lose a, proportion, a much higher share of his capital than the, than the, than the partner who contributed more. Ravid disagrees. Ravid says that the losses, even though profits are shared 50-50, independent of the size of the relative size of their contributions, losses are shared in proportion to the size of their contributions. The Ravid sheet is rejected. The Shulchan Aruch, and apparently most posts can paskin like the, the Rambam, that just like profits, Shmuel told us, are shared 50-50, losses are shared 50-50 as well. There is, however, a second machlokas in which the halacha is less clear, and that is within the sheet of the Rambam, that profits are shared 50-50. So what happens if the, if the partner who contributed less, though the losses are so high that he, that, that he has to bear the full loss, he actually ends up in the red. So, for example, the Rambam talks about a case where one partner contributed 400, one contributed 200, and they lost 500, and now there's only 100 left. 
So if each party has to bear 50% of the loss, half of 500 is 250. If each, if each party has to bear the loss of 250, and the partner who only gave 200 initially, he would be in the red of 50. The Rambam seems to actually rule that in such a case, that partner, we demand that he make a catch-up contribution, he, he bring another 50 to the partnership and give it to the other partner, so each one ends up losing 250. That partner originally lost his entire initial capital contribution of 200 was wiped out, and now he gives up another 50, so he ends up losing 250 out of pocket. The other partner initially gave 400, initially gave 400, and after 500 was wiped out, there's 100 left. He keeps that 100 plus the 50 that the other partner gives him, so he ends up with 150. He originally put in 400, so he also loses 250. That seems to be, the, that is the shita of the Rama. Here, the Shulchan Aruch does not seem to agree. Shulchan Aruch paskins like a shita of the Ramah and the shita of the Ravid as well. The Ravid says, as Nachronim explained, that even according to the Rambam, I, I the Ravid says, I hold that the losses should be divided in proportion to their capital contributions. Even if he, the Rambam, he says that, that the losses are 50-50, but that's limited, that's capped at the amount of his capital contribution. A partner can never be called upon to make new contributions to catch up. His total liability, the Rambam says, within the sheet of the Rambam would be limited to his initial capital contribution. That's the sheet of the Ramah. And the Shulchan Aruch seems to pass in like that as well, even though in Hilchah Shavuos he brings the, the opinion of the Rambam that, that indicates that he would have to, that in theory, if the losses were clearly established, in the, when he discusses the laws of the Shavuos that partners take, the, the, the Shulchan Aruch brings the Rambam that, who seems to imply that, that in a case where a, a full 500 loss would be established, the partner would have to bring more money. So the Taz explains that the, that the Mechabra, the, the Mechabra at least, is just coming to make the point that even according to the Rambam who holds that you do have to make catch-up contributions, you have to prove it, and yet you're not, uh, you're not believed with a simple oath. But Lalacha, the Shulchan doesn't pass like that. He passes like the opinion of the Rambam, of the Ravid and the Ramah, that even though losses are shared 50-50, you do not, we do not tell a partner that he has to make any additional contributions to equalize, to, 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 so that the losses are equalized. Now the Rambam adds, when he talks about profits, the Rambam adds that this whole discussion of how to share the profits and the losses is by default, when the partners don't stipulate any arrangement for how they should be, for how they should be divided. But if they do stipulate how they want the profits and losses to be divided, and even if profits and losses are unequal, even if they say that the, that the partner who gave less capital, the Rambam says, should share more of the profits, and the partner who gave more capital should actually get less of the profits, and even if they reverse when it comes to losses, that the partner who shares, who gets a large share of the profits, only accepts a small share of the loss, and the partner who, share, who gets only a small share of the profits assumes a large share of the loss, whatever they do, no matter how not logical, it might sound to us, it doesn't matter. The Rambam says, When it comes to Dine Mamanus, partners can arrange their affairs however they want. And this seems to be the opinion of the Rush as well. The Rush says, we mentioned earlier, the Rush says that the reason for Shmuel's Din that you split the profit 50-50 is because the absence of the stipulation to the contrary indicates that that's what they want. That's what they want. So it's clear from the Rush that he understood that it's up to them to stipulate whatever they want. If they don't stipulate, Allah makes assumptions about what they mean. But obviously, the, 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 whole, the whole sheet of the rush is based on the idea that the partners have the right to stipulate, the right to stipulate whatever they want. The, the Shulchan, Aruch, Shulchan Aruch then adds, based on Tosefta, the Shulchan Aruch adds, this discussion that we've said, that losses are split 50-50, that refers to business losses. They bought merchandise, they sold it, it didn't sell for as much as they wanted, they had expenses, and they ended up, 
they ended up incurring losses. But, in, but if the merchandise itself is actually lost or stolen, Gneva and Aveda, that the Shulchanar of Paskins is, is Lufimos, and that the Postman seems to accept is, 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 is divided according to the relative sizes of their capital contributions. What happens when partners borrow money? Who's responsible among the various partners for the debt? So there are two cases. There's one case where all the partners borrow the money. There's one case where only some or one of the partners borrows the money. In the first case, where all the partners borrow the money, they're all on the same page. So they're all responsible for the debt. A partnership is not a corporation. The partners do have personal liability. However, the halacha is, the, the Shulchanar of Paskins, that the liability, each one is only liable for his primarily for his portion of the debt. If there are five partners and they borrow $500, each one is primarily only liable for, for $100. Each partner is liable for the other $400 as an arev, as a, as a guarantor or a co-signer. So if, four of the par- if, if all the assets of the partnership are gone and four of the partners have no money, then the creditor can get the entire $500 from any one of the partners who has money. However, if they do have money, then we apply the standard rules of an arev, the halacha of the halacha of arvus is that a creditor is not allowed to sue an arev before attempting to collect the money from the primary borrower himself. So here too, the, the creditors have to approach each partner for his share of the debt, for his proportional share of the debt, and only if one partner doesn't have the funds to cover it, he, he isn't, he can't, he isn't paying it, then he can, he can try to collect that portion of his debt from the other partners. Here again, here again, the, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah say, the Ramah, I think, says that this is by default. If the partners stipulate that they want to be a, that they want to be Kablanim, they want to be the type of Arev who can be, who will be responsible in the first place, they can do that. But if they don't stipulate, by default, each partner is only primarily liable as a borrower on his share of the debt, and, and, the, and, he's, and he's liable for the other partner's share only as an Arev, only in second place after the other partners are, are unable are not paying the amount that they are liable for. What happens if only one partner borrows? Are the other partners responsible for the debt? Now, obviously, if a partner borrows for himself, for his personal use, certainly the other partners are not responsible. But what happens if a partner borrows for the partnership, but the other partners weren't actually involved in, the, in taking out that debt? So generally speaking, the other partners are responsible, as long as the debt was made on their behalf, on behalf of the partnership business, they're all going to be responsible for the debt. However, there is a machlokes, the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, based on Rishonim, there is a machlokes as to when that applies. The Shulchan Aruch says that as long as, it's, as long as it's established, as long as we know that the debt was on behalf of the partners, whether we know that through witness testimony, whether the, all the partners concede it, once, it, once Basin knows that's what happened, they will, then they will hold all the partners responsible for the debt, and that seems to be the most straightforward and logical position. We always say in Dini Mamanus Lo Ivri Sadiel Shakri, witnesses are only required if we don't know what happened, if the partners concede, as long as Basin knows what happened, that's it. Then all the partners are liable. Ramah, however, Paskins like a different opinion of the Rishonim, a somewhat uh, trickier opinion. The Ramah is explained by the Shah, Ramah Paskins that it depends. If there were actually witnesses that testified that, that knew that the loan was for the partnership, then all the partners are liable, even if they weren't involved in the actual borrowing. However, if there were no witnesses, even if the non-borrowing partner admits, concedes freely and based in, as a matter of personal integrity, that he knows that the money was borrowed for the partnership, he's still not liable, despite the fact that we generally say, every Sadi, Elder Shakri, this is an exception. 
Here we say that even if the money is borrowed for the partnership, since at the end of the day he was not the actual borrower, he's only liable if there was objective, third-party, neutral evidence or testimony to the effect that the loan was taken out on behalf of the partnership, but if we're relying on his freely made concession to the basin, that, he, that even though there's no proof to this, he knows and he admits that it was for the partnership, then there are no Paskins that he is not, that he's not liable. The Shulchan Aruch brings a halacha that a shutaf who engages in prohibited, problematic conduct. He does business, the example of the Shulchan Aruch is, he does business with Nevelis and Trefus, he does Chorab and Varim Hasur. Even types of Isser that are not Asur Bahana, he's still not allowed to do business, either with their Isser or with there's still an Isser in doing business with food that's, that, that, that you're not allowed to eat. So if a partner does business in that, with, with that kind of merchandise, then the halacha changes. Instead of the regular rules that the profits and losses are divided according to the rules we discussed earlier, here the other partners have the upper hand. If he generates profit, then they can say, okay, even though you did something that was usher, but we're partners, so we get to share in the profits. But if instead he incurs losses, then they can wash their hands of this, they can say, this was usher, this is considered deviation from the rules of the partnership, the general halachas of deviation will cover in a later week, but in such a case, they can say this is deviation and the loss has to be borne solely by you. We're, we're, not, we're not responsible for any, for any part of your loss. The Chidah discusses what happens if the Isser in question was Chil Shabbos. He said, the Chidah says that, that, if, they were, that if the partner was Mechal Shabbos, he says that, he says that that's different from Schara B'dvarim HaSurim. He says that Schara B'dvarim HaSurim is inherently prohibited. You're not allowed to do that. So that's considered a shinoi, and he has to bear all the loss himself. However, when it comes to Chil Shabbos, he says that that's incidental. He happened to be Mechal Shabbos. He could have done the business without being Mechal Shabbos. He says, even if we're, we're not going to say that, the, that the, if he lost, the, the loss was an onesh for Shabbos, so it's his fault, that's considered drama, he says, even if that's how God runs the world, that's not considered he caused the partnership for loss. So here, since the basic business was legitimate, it just happened to be that he did it on Shabbos, then this halacha would not apply, and the losses would still be split equally. But that's the halacha of, of a partner who engages in, in prohibited activity, something that's usher, that's, uh, that's usher al-pitara. So the schar still goes la'emtza, still split according to the rules we discussed earlier. But the hefzid he has to bear, at least in the case of dvarim ha'asurim, if not chel shabbos, at least in the case of schar of dvarim ha'asurim, he has to bear the losses exclusively. The Ramah says that the same thing applies to a shutaf who steals. A shutaf who engages in Gnev and Gzela, the same thing applies, that if he gets away with it, in a case where he doesn't have to return it, then the profits have to be split with other partners. But if he loses, then the schar is la'atzma. Here, the Akronim challenges. The, even though the Ramah says this is the same as Schar B'dvarim Asurim, a number of Akronim reject this ruling of the Ramah, the Taz, the Shach, the Nesivas, the Chumsofer says we, we, we have to follow the Shach even if we can challenge the Shach. The, a number of Akronim say that in this case, the, the partner who stole gets to keep the profits as well, because that's not part of the partnership. The, the partnership is for doing normal business. Stealing is considered, stealing is considered uh, out of the normal course of business. The Shach himself compares it to finding a Metziah. He says Yushalmi compares it to finding a Metziah, just like partners, it's a question of the postkin, but we him that if one partner finds a Metziah, finds a lost object in a finder's keeper situation, he doesn't have to share it with the partners, so he doesn't have to share the profits of his crime, of his theft, with the partners either. 
the Taz says that even in a partnership, with, even in a partnership where they stipulated that they will share materials, partners can stipulate such a thing, and often did. Even in a partnership where they stipulate that their partnership is so broad and all-encompassing that they even split Matthias, but not theft, not the proceeds of theft. People don't, by default, we assume people don't want to acquire something that's usser, like stolen goods, and therefore the partnership is assumed to not encompass theft, and therefore, when it comes to theft, certainly he bears all responsibility for losses, but even when it comes to schar, the, many have heard him saying, not like the Ramah, when it comes to theft, even when it comes to schar, he gets to keep all the schar, because that, by, by doing something like, uh, like theft, that's considered completely outside the, outside the scope of the partnership. Some posts can distinguish between whether the theft was in the course of normal partnership business, he cheated a, uh, he cheated a, uh, a customer or a supplier, or whether the theft was a new act of theft. In the former case, it's just like doing Varmasur, that in such a case we would say, that the profits have to be shared, but the losses are borne by the shirts himself. In a case where the theft was, he went and robbed a bank or something, he picked someone's pocket, in that case, then we'll accept the ruling of the... Then we'll say, like the shock and the other post game, then we'll say that even the scar is kept by himself. That's like finding a matia. That's something which is completely out of the ambit of the... the ambit of the partnership. One last point regarding the... the rules of how partnerships are, are, are share losses... In modern law, in modern commercial culture, we have a notion of vicarious liability. In certain cases, someone can be liable for what, his, uh, what other people do if he's responsible for them, responding at superior. In certain cases, we hold a, a boss, someone, someone who has oversight, responsibility for somebody else. We hold him responsible for what his employees or underlings do. Someone goes, someone goes into a store and trips and injures himself. We don't say you have to sue just the custodian, you know, that, that you sue uh, the facilities manager even, you, you sue the business. And the modern assumption is a business is responsible for the bad conduct of its, uh, the, the misconduct of its employees. And the question is, what about according, what about according to Allah? In Halacha, generally, no one is responsible for anybody else's bad behavior. We say, even if you instructed him to do something wrong, Halacha doesn't have a notion of conspiracy. Maybe between Shemayim, but between Adam in general, there's no responsibility. Certainly, if you didn't instruct them to do wrong, if one partner did something wrong, if an employee of the business did something wrong, there is no basis for holding the business liable. If one partner does something wrong, there, there would be no business for holding other. There would be no basis for holding other partners liable. Nevertheless, there are some Achronim who do argue that halacha does incorporate such a notion of vicarious liability. They and to a later, and to referring you to Tabak, and to a greater, to a greater and more detailed extent, Rab Moshe Perlmutter in several of his farms, Chemdas Moshe and Evan Shoem, they discuss an idea that even though it's true in halacha, vicarious liability generally doesn't apply. But insofar as that's the minhag, insofar as that is the prevailing custom, and that's what people expect. So, as we've been discussing throughout the laws of partnership, many many halachas of partnership depend on minhag, and if, if there's a clear minhag that holds a business responsible for its employees, or that holds partners responsible for the misconduct of one of their number, then these acronym argued that there would be a good basis for holding a business in general responsible for its employees, and certainly for holding, presumably, certainly for holding the partnership in general responsible for the misconduct of one of the partners. The truth is, however, even though this is a powerful and persuasive argument, there is also a counter-argument. Rav Perlmutter himself, in one of his discussions of this topic, after he proposes this argument of Minhag, he says, but wait, maybe we should say, he says, 
that when it comes to Jews doing business, that even though it's true that usually that people usually expect each other to be responsible for their employees, for their underlings, that's because of ignorance. They don't know the halacha. They don't know that Alpid Das Yisrael, there's no notion of vicarious liability, he says. When we tell him the halacha, maybe he has the right to say, I expected you to follow the halacha. If the halacha says, I'm not responsible, then I don't want to be responsible. This is a very powerful counter-argument, and we do find this raised by other postings as well in other contexts. For example, Roshon Lazam and Orbach has a tshuva on worker striking, where the argument was, was made that even in a case where a strike would be against halacha, some posts can justify such a strike of Aaron Cutler on the grounds of Dean Mochusadina, but even if we're going to argue that a certain strike is against halacha, let's say we won't say Dean Mochusadina, Roshon Zalman deals with the, the argument that maybe if that's the prevailing commercial culture, and if it's understood that workers sometimes strike and it's allowed by law and allowed by custom, it becomes a minute. And maybe we say that when the employer hired him, he understood that, he, that, the, that both sides are going to act within the scope of acceptable behavior according to prevailing custom. Roshon Zalman shoots that down, and he says, nope, we don't say that, we, that minute has no force, he says. The, the employer can say, on the contrary, when I hired you, I assumed you would follow Din Torah. I assumed you're a Jew and you followed Din Torah. Any argument we have should be, should be uh, resolved by applying to Din Torah. So in some cases, posts can take this attitude. They say that when two Jews enter into a contractual arrangement, the assumption is that disputes between them will be resolved by Din Torah, not based on Minhagim. On the other hand, there are many, many other cases where posts can say that when there is a custom, even a custom that derives from law and, and secular business culture, the custom is binding. When we apply one rule and when we apply the other rule is not clear. But, uh, but with regard to our question of vicarious liability, the Shai and the Chemdas Moshe both propose this far that if the Minhag provides for vicarious liability for a business, then Halacha would recognize that as well. Although the Chemdas Moshe himself and one of his farm actually on that on the grounds that maybe when Jews do business, they have the right to say that we expected that any disputes between us should be resolved based on Din Torah and not by incorporating secular custom.